Thank you, Pastor Laura. Well, good morning. Glad to see you here this morning, and I'm glad to be here this morning. My name is Daisy Richardson. I'm part of the team here at Hillcrest, and um, I'm excited that we get to jump more into Galatians this morning, because that's where we've been for the last few weeks, and that's where we're going for the next little bit as well. You know, this week... I don't know if some of you in the summertime, maybe you do a little bit more scrolling on things or you have a little bit more downtime, but something popped up my Facebook feed this, uh, this week and I looked at it and I think because we've been in Galatians and what we've been talking about, I gave it a second look and um, I'll sh- show you that picture now if we can put it up there. Um, it's a, what are the next, there we go. So this picture post up, popped up. And uh, the original Facebook post text, which I think was written by a family member of this little girl in the picture, says this. Nothing is more beautiful than to see a little girl who sees Jesus in need of help and says, oh no, Jesus needs help, and then tries to take up the cross. Just the pure innocence of a child. Just to give some context, this statue is... um, at a place called The Cross in Groom, Texas. And uh, there's a 190-foot-tall freestanding cross, of course, because it's in Texas, and everything's bigger in Texas. And also on those grounds, there are life-size bronze statues depicting um, the 12 stations of the cross, Jesus' journey to the cross. And so they have 1,000 visitors that come every day to see this, and this is one little visitor. It's a sweet picture, right? And right away, I looked at what she was doing. It's like, oh, yeah, the, a cute... Um, toddler here. She's going to help Jesus because he stumbled with the cross. But I couldn't help looking at it again and thinking, it's kind of sobering though. If we look at this picture and we ask ourselves, do I live like this? Not as an innocent child, but do I live like I need to help Jesus out? Was Jesus' death on the cross sufficient? Or do we need, actually, does he need a little bit of help? Do we need to add something to it? The name of our series for Galatians has been Jesus plus nothing. And we're going to keep talking about that. We're about halfway through with today. And in fact, if you've missed some of the first three weeks of the um, series, you can catch up online with the podcasts, hillcrestmj.com. You can do that with any of our sermons. And they're great for traveling back and forth to camp or on holidays, whatever. Um, You can follow along with them. So Paul is writing this letter to believers in the region of Galatia to address this controversy that's happening about the gospel. And here's a little nutshell about the book of Galatians before we jump into our chapter. The book of Galatians reminds the church that they're supposed to embrace and follow the gospel message of the crucified Messiah, Jesus. The requirement for non-Jewish Christians to become law or Torah followers, things like being circumcised, eating kosher food, and on and on and on, misses the point. Jesus alone fulfills the laws of the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, and justifies believers. So when people put their trust and faith in Jesus, they're new creations, free from requirements of following those laws of the Torah. And now they join a multi-ethnic covenant family of Jesus, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham because of Jesus and the Spirit. Believers learn to love God and others. If you want to watch a cool little animated video clip about Galatians, you can go to thebibleproject.com and look up Galatians. We showed it a few weeks ago. It'll give you a great overview of what is happening in all of the chapters. Here's the quick little synopsis from the last three weeks of sermons. Galatians 1, Steve preached about no other gospel. Don't add anything to it. It's the Jesus plus nothing. 
chapter 2 of Galatians, Kurt started it with these three words to remember, believe, saved, obey, that it's important the order of those words, that we don't jumble them up. Believe, saved, obey. And he had a great little thing at the end. You might be a spy if, you might remember that one, asking yourself if maybe you're a spy on the inside. The second half of Galatians 2 was last week with Pastor Steve, where Paul is confronting Peter about leaving the gospel, the law behind, not the gospel, dying to the law to live for God. And you might remember we played a fun game of spot the twisted gospel in the country western song at the end of the sermon. You can listen to that one online as well. I encourage you to go back and do that. So today we're moving on to the first part of chapter 3 and sermon note takers. Here's what you fill in in your spot about where we're talking about today. Galatians is the book of the Bible. Chapter 3. Verses 1 through 14. We're going to start reading on page 944. If you're using a Bible in the bench or you can look it up on your phone or your own Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own, take that Bible in the bench home with you. It's our gift to you today. What we're going to do is I'm going to back up just a little bit and read the last couple of verses of chapter 2. Because you know those, those um, divisions in the chapters, those were put in later. So just give us a little bit of context for where Paul's writing from as he continues to talk to the Galatians. So we're going to start with... 2 verse 19. For through the law I died, this is Paul, to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So I ask again, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? Or by your believing what you heard. We'll stop right there for now. Paul is not pulling any punches. He's starting with their experience, and he's going to quickly move them on to Scripture here. He's saying, look. See, the Galatians, they did not, he says, before you, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. The Galatians were not eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. They had not seen Jesus die. But Paul is saying, we have preached publicly and clearly to you about what Jesus did. And you believed and you received his spirit. You were off to such a good start. So now, why are you trying to add things to the gospel? Why are you trying to work your way to God? I've been hoping that someday I could work a sports illustration into my sermon. I've got one. All right, Pastor Steve. There's this thing called the total 24 hours of spa. Now, don't be fooled, it's not a spa. You don't get 24 hours of spa treatments. It's actually a 24-hour endurance race for cars held annually in Belgium since 1923. There's no spa treatments included. Spa has something to do with the, the origin, the name, the place name, it's a shortened name. So, in 2012, this article came out entitled, oh no, I shouldn't even tell you the title, I'm just gonna read it to you. This is what it says. 
Determination is a quality that all professional competitors know something about. When it comes to endurance racing, though, determination takes on a new meaning. Jose Close, the driver of Team VDS Adventures Mustang, showed that he knows a thing or two about determination in the 24 hours of spa last weekend. Team VDS Racing was having troubles with steering for most of the race, which put them in the pits for three hours. They were able to get out and on the track again, but it stopped right before the finish. Not to be beaten by a measly mechanical failure, he finished the race himself. Let's see that picture. By pushing his vehicle across the line. Do we have it? There he is. It's a little blurry because it's just from video footage. Yes, they were in 28th place, but this is an endurance race. Half the difficulty is just finishing. The fact that he pushed his car across the line himself is a testament to his racing spirit. If you're looking for a guy with heart, you found him. He was the hero. He didn't win by any long shot, but he, that, the point was he tried to finish. So we look at that picture and read that story, and it's like, whoa, that's amazing. However, would it be as triumphant if you were given a Mustang racing car and at the start of the race, you hopped out and started to push the car for the whole race. Would you be a hero? No, you, like the Galatians, would be foolish. That's not the way a race runs. That's not how high-speed racing is done. And that's what Paul is saying. You were off to such a great start when you came to Christ. Why would you get out and try to push your race car? You wouldn't. Verse 4, Paul says, have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? He's saying, look, here's all the stuff you've been through. Let me, let me shed some light on it. I'm going to go on a little tangent for a second because the Lord was really, he was really putting this on my heart this week about our experience and, um, and how that relates to scripture. And, and that's Paul's moving here. He's starting saying, here's the things you've experienced and now let me show you what what the scripture says about it. Um, I'm going to need two volunteers to help me up here. Ooh, right there. You want to come help me? Just hold something. You don't have to say anything. And I need a second one. Yeah, you come and hold something too. All right. My volunteers are going to help us figure this out. I was thinking about this whole, our experience and the word of God. So, Oh, you can be the mini-me, because we're both, we've got sort of color, same color hair here. You come over here, and you be my experience. Just hold that nicely. And I put in quotes, my truth. I'm saying that very sarcastically, because I don't believe we actually own truth, but this phrase is used in our society, and I think it really reflects how self-centered we are. So here is our, my experience, my truth, and you are going to be the word of God. I'm glad we got some muscles up here, because I found the biggest one I could find. All right. So, I'm, whoop, whoop. I wasn't kidding. We do need muscles for this. All right. So, I'm over here in my life, in my experience, the things I know, the things I've done, all those things, and maybe something isn't going very well, and I think, well, I guess it couldn't hurt to see what the Bible might say about this. And so I'm like, huh, let's take a little look. So I pull out my lens here. For those of you on the podcast, they're binoculars. And I'm, I'm standing over here. Here's my experience. I'm like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe there's something in the Bible that could help me at this moment. So I look. Well, uh, it's kind of distant. A little bit blurry. Maybe there's one word. Ooh, love. I like that word. Yep. 
I'll take that word. Word of the day is love. What's wrong with this picture? Maybe you can't see because I'm wearing, these are practically opera glasses. I'm sorry, I did not get any great hunter spy, um, binoculars. Well, I'm looking through the big side of the binoculars. So things are a little distorted. And you're like, wow. So what should it look like? Well, actually, instead of starting from this point, we need to move ourselves to this point. We need to say, we need to start with the word of God. We need to say, here's the word of God. Now let me allow the word of God to examine my experience and test my experience. So if we look from this direction, they're not backwards. We're actually, we'll look through the, the real side and we go, whoa, I can like see every eyelash on your face. Whoa, if we start from this side with the word of God and allow it to test our experience, it'll start exposing where we're believing lies. It'll start exposing what we've added to the gospel. It'll start exposing those things. If we're always looking from this direction, we're too self-absorbed. We're not even examining the scripture. We don't start with our experience and then try to apply make scripture fit our experience. We start with scripture and let it mold and shape our experience, how we view it. Does that make sense? You give my assistants a big hand. Whew, there's some sweat here. Thank you. So my experience might say, you don't get anything, Woo. sorry about that. You don't get anything you don't work for. When I look at those lens, through those lenses, at the word of God, oh, look, here's a list of rules. This must be how I work for God's love and his approval. I see them there. But what if you start on this side and you start with scripture and you look back this way, it says, for a while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8, it's a different view. So Paul's going to use some examples from scripture here. And one of the problems that we've mentioned it a couple of weeks before is so there's these Judaizers, or I'm going to call them hyper-Jews, and they're, they're Jewish in background, and they've come to follow Jesus, but they're still holding on to all the laws that they've been following. And part of the problem in Galatians is, a big part of the problem, is that they're now saying to those who are coming to know Jesus who are not of Jewish background, who are Gentiles, they're saying... And you also need to follow our rules that came with being a Jew. So Paul looks back to scripture, and he doesn't pick just any example. He picks their own hero, Abraham, father Abraham. Let's look at verse 6. So, Abraham, so also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's quoting from Galatians 15. I'm sorry, Galatians, Genesis Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Again, he's quoting from Genesis. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul's quoting from Genesis 12 and 15 here. And we're going to take, because the kids are in with us this morning, we're going to take a moment to look at Abraham's story. And we're going to look at it on the screen. And this comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which if your kids haven't had this one, get this one. It's amazing. It really does a fabulous job of weaving the entire story of Jesus through the whole Old Testament and New Testament. So we're going to take a moment and look at Abraham's story from Genesis 
son of laughter. Years passed and things didn't get any better. People were still just as cruel and mean to one another. They still got sick and died. God's world was still full of tears. It was never meant to be like this. But God was getting ready to do something about it. He was going to make all the wrong things right, and he was going to do it through a family. Abraham, God said, how many stars are there? God was about to tell his friend a wonderful secret. Uh, let me see, Abraham said, rolling up his sleeves. But have you ever tried counting stars? <laughs> then you know how hard it is. Uh, 993, 994, 997. Uh, 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 wait, uh, uh, one, two. Well, of course, he kept losing count. Too many, he said. Guess what? God laughed. I will give you so many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, you won't be able to count them either. Abraham couldn't help giggling at such a wonderful idea, but he stopped himself. How could he have a family? Don't be silly. He didn't have any children, let alone grandchildren. He wiped away a tear. Anyway, it was far too late for him to start having babies at his age. He was 99 years old. What could God mean? Abraham, God said, believe me. And then God told Abraham his secret rescue plan. Abraham, I will make your family very big, God promised, until one day your family will come to number more than even all the stars in the sky. Abraham looked up at the dark night sky, thick with stars. You will be my special family, my people, and through you everyone on earth will be blessed. It was an incredible promise. God was going to rescue the world through Abraham's family. One of his great, great, great grandchildren would be the child, the promised one, the rescuer. Oh, but it's too wonderful, Abraham said. How can it be true? Is anything too good to be true? God asked. Is anything too wonderful for me? So Abraham trusted what God said more than what his eyes could see, and he believed. Now when Abraham's wife Sarah heard God's promise, she just laughed to herself, but it wasn't a happy laugh. It had tears in it. She'd always wanted a baby. Could her dream come true? Could she really have a baby when she was 90 years old? No, of course not, don't be silly, it was far too late. Sarah didn't believe God could do what he promised. She had forgotten that when God says something, it's as good as done. Of course it was as easy for God to give her a baby son as it was for him to make all the stars in the sky. And sure enough, nine months later, just as God had promised, Sarah gave birth to a baby boy. They named him Isaac, which means son of laughter. And Sarah laughed, but this time it was a glorious, happy laugh. Her dream had come true. God would do as he promised. He would always look after Abraham's family 
his special people. And one day, God would send another baby. A baby promised to a girl who didn't even have a husband. But this baby would bring laughter to the whole world. This baby would be everyone's dream come true. You can go and read the story of Abraham for yourself, starting in Genesis 12 and going on from there. Chapters following that. There's a couple of phrases in that one that I wonder if you caught them that really jump out to me. And then God told Abraham his secret rescue plan. Here it is. You will be my special family, my people, and through you, everyone on earth will be blessed. And then later it said that Abraham trusted what God said more than what his eyes could see. So Paul uses this story of Abraham for a couple of reasons. He uses it because Abraham's a very familiar character, both by the ones who are trying to impose all this stuff on the Galatians and the Galatians themselves. And he wants to show them two things. First of all, Paul wants to show the Galatians that salvation by faith isn't new. That in fact, it goes all the way back to Abraham. That Abraham was made acceptable before God by faith. We read that in Genesis 15, 6. And shock of all the shocks to these ones, it was before he was circumcised. How could he be right before God, before he'd done anything? This didn't make sense. Verse 6 says, it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. It's an accounting term, like a banking term. It means it was put on his account. So if you make a whole bunch of money and you give that money to me and you put it in my bank account, now it's sitting in my account, it's mine. That's what God did with Abraham. He took that being right with God, that righteousness, and he put it on Abraham's account so that it was like Abraham himself was acceptable before God. When we say yes to Jesus and salvation, come to salvation, we don't become perfect in that moment or righteous, but we are counted as perfect before Christ. Righteousness, here you go for your sermon notes. Write this. Righteous, which is right and then E-O-U-S. Righteous equals right with God. That's what it means, right with God. This was very confusing to the Israelites because... To, or to the Jews, because righteousness to them implied perfect obedience to the law. But Abraham came before the law. This was all jumbled up. How could he have been righteous? And so Paul's showing out, showing them before the law. You could be right with God because God made Abraham right because of his faith. In verse 7 it says, understand them that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Now, you may have heard a different phrase and a different point, and Paul specifically does not say, are the seed of Abraham. Here's a spoiler alert for next week. Down a few verses in verse 16, it tells us who the seed of Abraham is. It's Jesus. So we can't be that. But he's talking about children of Abraham, not physical descendants, but spiritual children of Abraham. Jesus himself even makes some of those same references in John 8. So first he wants them to know that salvation by faith is not new. We're not preaching something new to you. This is already happening with Abraham. And secondly, Paul wants the Galatians to know that Gentiles, non-Jews, 
were included in God's rescue plan from the start. They both date, both these things date back to Abraham. Verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. What? So the Galatians can realize that Galatians, Gentiles, non-Jews, they're not illegitimate children. They are not plan B. They are not an afterthought. They were included from the very beginning of God's rescue plan. Do you know that's us too? That's us. We weren't an afterthought. A whoops, a surprise. He planned this. He planned this from the start. So Paul's point isn't just about works and and trying to earn approval, but saying that Gentiles, the Galatians and others, are acceptable to God on the basis of faith in Christ and that they don't have to follow this giant list of rules that are being imposed on them. I won't spend a lot of time talking about Abraham's covenant or promise because I know that Doug's going to talk about that next week when he goes into chapter 4. But I want to say this. There's two parts to the promise that God makes to Abraham. The first one is to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your children great. I am going to make those who bless you, I'm going to bless them. It's all about him. It's like, whoa, Abraham's really lucky. He's getting all this blessing. But then there's a second part to it. He says, all people of the earth, all nations will be blessed through you. All nations will be blessed through you. That's in verse 8. Kurt mentioned a couple of weeks ago about a missions course that he had taken. And actually, I was in on that one too. It's called Kairos. And it's great for giving a perspective of God's big plan um, throughout history and uh, what he's doing. And I want to read you a quote from their material about this statement, about Abraham's blessing. The Great Commission is God, through the church, blessing or bringing salvation to all the people's nations of the earth. It's interesting to note that the early apostles and the New Testament writers never referred directly to the Great Commission as Jesus gave it in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. But they did refer many times to the Abrahamic covenant. That's what we're talking about. In reference to world evangelization. See Acts 3 and Galatians 3. There we are. They knew that Jesus was not giving something new when he gave the Great Commission. But he was reaching back 2,000 years, taking hold of the covenant God gave to Abraham and his seed and presenting it to the church, entrusting its blessing and calling to them. The Abrahamic covenant is God's unchanging purpose, his big rescue plan. So Paul's telling the Galatians, you weren't an afterthought. God actually has a view for all nations. There was a time, you know, when, when the people of Israel... It kind of looked like maybe they're just God's special people and he doesn't care about anybody else because he's kind of doing stuff for them and and not anyone else. But he's, he's changing their view on this. He's saying that's not actually the big plan. That was just a little bit of the plan. So this all nations, God didn't just choose him to spoil him, Abraham, and make him the object of all his love, he chose him as a means through which to bless all nations. That was going to ha- come because Jesus was going to come as a descendant and then bless all nations. And he was going to, God was getting ready to bring to himself a people that is not all the same, but that is from all nations of the world. And I was just curious about this. How many nations are there, you ask? I'm so glad you asked. Today, 
In our world, our world population is about 7.6 billion individual people. And that breaks down to about 195 political countries in the world. And I say political countries because you recognize that a border of a country sometimes cuts through people groups, um, and those are political boundaries. So depending on how you break it down, there are about 16,300 people groups or ethnic peoples that could be called nations. And these distinctions are that they are cultural ethno-linguistic groups. So they share culture, they share ethnicity or race, and they share language. All those things, 16,300 groups. If you want to look at more of those kinds of things, you can go to joshuaproject.net. They've got great information. God's drawing to himself a people from every nation. We were talking about this, some of the stuff, we were talking about this this week, and I know Pastor Steve has been pretty choked up because no one else is following the World Cup this year, apparently. Just him and a few others. And then his team did some choking this week too. Sorry about that. I get choked up too at FIFA World Cup, but I'll tell you, FIFA World Cup theme songs, that's what chokes me up. Get a little teary-eyed and choked up. Do you know what it is? It's the rallying. They're all rallying around the same thing and all these nations being represented and they're so passionate about soccer. But there's this passion to me. It's this passionate people from all over the world rallying together. It's a little glimpse of the kingdom of God. Maybe a little bit more competitive than the kingdom of God is going to be. When we confess Jesus as our Savior, Messiah, that Savior, we commit ourselves to his mission, this big rescue plan. It's to all nations. You can't have one without the other. Here's for your sermon notes. I want you to write three things, and we're going to do some arrows. Abraham, write his name, Abraham, and then put an arrow, and then write Jesus. Abraham, arrow, Jesus, arrow, Blessings for all nations. Or if you can't write all those words, just put all nations. Abraham, Jesus, blessings for all nations. That's what it boils down to. Let's move on in Galatians 3. We're going to go to uh, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law. So he's presented his picture of Abraham, the story. And now... Paul's going to start, like, peppering them with scriptures from the Torah, from those first five books. He's going to start peppering them in his argument. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's from Deuteronomy. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Leviticus, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, back to Deuteronomy, verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Whew, he quotes from all over the place, It's kind of jumbled. What is this thing that he's talking about? The curse. Well, verse 10 says, for all those who rely on the works of the law. Let's talk about rely for a second. Paul's not just describing one person who's trying really hard, trying really hard to work and do things and striving. 
And he's not even talking about a specific branch of legalistic Christians. He's not saying that. What Paul is actually describing is all Jews, explaining that their Jewishness is not sufficient before God, relying on the works of the law, that that's a, it's a form of life for them. So it's not just about do you keep a rule or a law or do you break it? That's silly. Of course, we're supposed to keep laws. There's lots in the scripture about those types of things. He's not saying break every law. He's saying, are you relying on the system of the law? Are you putting your hope in it? We can be very consumed with working on improving our behavior. And that's, if you're, that, if you're like that, you're drawn to the list. You're drawn to the list of do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Okay, because I can check those boxes. Legalism can be so easy. Just rule following. We can be obsessed with that rather than examining the motivations of our heart. That's where transformation comes in. And Galatians will talk more about that as the book goes along. I was listening this week to a great sermon by Tim Keller on this subject, and he had a couple of points about those radars going up. What, how do I know if I'm relying on the law, putting my hope in the law? Here's some questions to ask. Does criticism devastate you? Do you live in anxiety? Do you always have a sense of condemnation, like you just can't get over the guilt of something that you've already confessed as sin? Maybe you fall apart when you fail. Red light, red light. If you're living that way, something besides Jesus might be operating as your savior. Maybe you're relying on a system of laws or rules. Maybe you're relying on your own performance, on your good name, whatever it is. The challenges in that moment, when you recognize, when the red flag goes up and you think, why am I living constantly with a sense of condemnation and I'm a child of God? Why? Maybe you've put something in his place. Jesus plus what? What did you put in the blank? That's when we turn and we look at Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus and focus on him, we should be able to say, if I have him, none of the rest of this matters. The approval of people, wealth, fame, whatever it is, job advancement, fix your eyes on Jesus. So he's talking about relying. Are you relying on something else besides Jesus? Now, what about this curse of the law? Here's the curse of the law. So the law was given to the Israelites, and then there was this cycle that happened because they would obey for a little while, and then they would disobey, and then they would have to take sacrifices to pay for those um, for that disobedience, and then they would obey again, and then it goes on and on and on and on and on. And this is the crazy cycle of the curse of the law. It's spinning and spinning and spinning, and it never must stop. It always has to be fulfilled. You have to keep on doing it. That's the curse. And then Christ breaks the crazy cycle. He says, once and for all, sin has been dealt with. Forgiveness has been poured out. We don't have to live in this crazy cycle to always be working at the law. So Jesus is the cure for the curse of the law. He's the cure for the curse of the law. And this whole part that says, um, let's see, that just as it is written, that everyone... um, 
curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And then it goes on to say, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. That's it. Verse 13. What is he talking about that? Uh, What is he talking about there? Well, you see, it was not the Jewish practice to crucify criminals. The Romans did that. Jews stoned criminals to death. They threw giant rocks at them until they died. Now, if their crime was especially shameful, they would take their dead body and string them up on a pole or a tree in a public place as a way of public shame to say this person is under the curse of God because of, because of the crime that they committed. So he's reflecting back on their own customs and traditions that, um, that these hyper-Jews would be familiar with and saying Jesus was hung on a tree and he received that curse for you. Well, maybe you're saying, okay, I believe Jesus can save me. That's silly to think that I could save myself. I believe that part. But, uh, but then what? I still sin after he, I said yes to him. How do I move from acceptable to God at salvation to mature in Christ afterwards? I have really good news for you. The way that you enter the kingdom is the same way in which you advance or grow It's through Christ. He's the answer to both. He's the answer to both. Steve talked a few weeks ago about this difference between, and he used some big words. We're going to explain some of them again in case you missed it. The difference between being legally righteous, so that's a position with Christ, that's being justified. So when you say yes to Jesus, God looks at you, he sees that you are, he puts Jesus in front, and it's like you are right with God, okay? So you're justified. That's an event there. That's the event of salvation. But then there's this long, ongoing process, as though a line and an arrow comes out from that dot, of becoming more like Christ. And the word he used for that is sanctification. It's a big one. Since the kids are here, I thought we would explain that word a little bit better. And so I brought something. You know, I have a couple of boys at my house, and so sometimes things don't always go as planned. And... Well, or maybe they just have different plans than I do. And sometimes something like this shows up. And this is, for if you're listening on the podcast, it's a very, very dirty little boy's shirt. You know it's been a good day when their shirt gets this dirty. Well, my first inclination when I see that is, let's just throw it out. But wait, you say, there's some way to get rid of dirty clothes besides throwing them out? Oh, we do have a way of dealing with that. It's called a washing machine and maybe some really strong stain remover. So by the magic of being on stage here, we're going to wash that shirt. Whew, look at that. It shrunk a little. Here's our nice, clean, white shirt. It's great. I'm ready to send him out the door with that. And then his grandma sees him and goes, uh, uh, uh. You're not going to go out like that, are you? Like what? It looks great. It's all white. The stains are out. Oh, it's a little wrinkly. It's a little wrinkly. Now, pay close attention, kids. I'm going to do something you may never have seen performed live before. First, let me explain my equipment. This is an ironing board. A very small one, granted. This... This is a cool machine that you plug into the wall and it heats up. It's called an iron. You may have never have seen either of your parents ever use these tools before. <laughs> However, 
Their parents and grandparents lived with these things. They ironed everything, even underwear and sheets for their beds, all sorts of things. Because what would happen is your, sh- your shirt is nice and clean, but it's just a little wrinkly. I learned to iron shirts when I was quite little, and I got paid 25, the equivalent of 25 cents a shirt. It was a great job. So as you iron, something happens. The heat and pressure from this iron take those wrinkles out of the shirt. You probably didn't know that shirts came without wrinkles at any moment. (laughs) My grandma would be so proud. Well, one of them. The other one never ironed. (laughs) All right, so here's a little bit of work. So we're working. I'm not all the way done with that one yet, but look, oh, it's coming along quite nicely. Look at that. Well, why am I showing you my family's dirty laundry here? Because when we are justified, it's like you wash that shirt. Christ took you from this to sparkling white. Here you go. Boom, it just happened. It's done. It required... I'm sorry, I'm having trouble here. It required... There we go. An external force at work to get that shirt clean. That shirt couldn't just wish the stains away. It needed something else to work at it. Well, sanctification is like this ironing process. It doesn't happen just like that. It takes a little while. It's actually what the Holy Spirit does as we cooperate with him for the rest of our lives. This poor little wrinkled shirt can't just get those wrinkles out, just relax them out, and they'll go away. No, an external force is required. That external force is the same in salvation as in sanctification. It's Jesus Christ and his spirit, the power of his spirit within us. So this is an ongoing process. This is something that takes our whole life. He will keep making us more like himself, more like Christ. It's not something that we muster up and we just try to work hard at. He's going to keep working at it in our lives. That's sanctification. If you could do it by just trying really hard, well, sorry, uh, Paul, what Paul is saying is, no, stop, don't just keep trying really hard and relying on the law. You left that behind when you said yes to Christ. So here we go as we wrap up. Verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, curses everyone who hung on a pole. We talked about that. What about that redeemed? Christ redeemed. That's buying back. That's buying back a slave for the purpose of setting the slave free. You could buy a slave and keep them a slave, but that's not what he did. Salvation is not exchanging one form of bondage for another. It's being set free from bondage to sin and the law, and being set free into the liberty of God's grace through Jesus. Let's ask ourselves a couple of things. Oh, sermon note, kids, here. Last one I'm going to point out for you, if you, want to, if you have any room on your page. Write something like this. I can't work to make God love me. If you're good at whole sentences, do that one. I can't work to make God love me. Jesus already did that work. That's the point. We were part of his plan from the beginning. Not a mistake, not an afterthought. 
And he's the one who's going to do the work. It's about us positioning our hearts in a way that we are willing to let him do it. We turn our hearts to him. In not just at salvation, but continually through our lives and our walks with him as he makes us more like himself. One of the questions I was really challenged with in reading, verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. What it's for, I was asking myself, am I blessing others with the gospel Am I introducing them to Jesus and watching the Holy Spirit work in their lives? Or am I enslaving others by just introducing them to the law? Here's a long list of things. You should try doing them. Maybe your life will get better. I I think our response this morning is just all about saying yes to Jesus. And let me explain a couple ways that that might look for you. And maybe if the worship team wants to come back, you can come back now. Maybe saying yes to Jesus is the very, very beginning of your journey with Christ. Maybe you've never said yes to him before. You've never chosen to put your trust in him, to put your faith, and then to be seen as right with God because of what he did for you. Today could be the very first time that you would say yes to Jesus in that way your whole life will be different. I said yes to Jesus when I was a little girl. Some things changed and some things didn't change for a long time as I grew in my faith of, in him. It could be the very start of that journey for you. We're gonna pray in a minute. Maybe you've already said yes to Jesus. Maybe that was a long time ago. A couple of things might have happened. Maybe you said yes to Jesus, but somewhere along the way, this big list of do this and do that started to make you feel like you had to earn something, his approval, heaven. Something was added to Jesus plus nothing in your journey. We want to give you a chance to reposition your heart and respond to Jesus and say yes again. Say yes again not because you didn't know him, but because you want to walk in his grace and not be striving for approval. And finally, maybe you've realized this morning that you're actually the one who's been adding a list of things to Jesus for someone else, that you've been preaching the law and not the gospel of Jesus. You're more concerned about rule following and obedience than you are in someone else's life than you are about the transformation of their heart as they respond to Jesus. There's a a time that you can also reposition your heart. And maybe there's somebody that you need to actually make things right with and explain that to. So first of all, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do the first prayer. If you've never said yes to Jesus before, today could be the first day. Let's pray. We're going to close our eyes for a moment. God knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. You don't even have to speak out loud for him to know. Picture Jesus. He's here. He's with us. You have an opportunity to invite him 
to come into your mind and heart to be the leader of your life, you can pray something like this. There's no magic words. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me so much. I now turn away from all that bad stuff, that sin in my life. Maybe something will come to mind specifically. You can confess that to him right now. He's offering his forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for me. So I can be forgiven and set free. I receive your forgiveness. I put my trust in you. And I ask you to come into my life by your Holy Spirit and be with me forever. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If you said yes to Jesus for the very first time today, please tell someone. Tell someone you came with. Tell a family member you know has been praying for you. Come and tell me. Come tell one of the prayer team. We would love to celebrate with you because something very significant has happened. The most significant thing in your entire life has just happened. You are seen right with God. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. And I'm going to pray for you. And then you can consider yourself dismissed. We'll sing. Um... But you might want to linger if you have time to linger and you feel like the Lord has been putting one of those other things on your heart, maybe that you've been adding a lot of things to Jesus plus nothing, or maybe you've been the instrument of adding a lot of things in someone else's walk with Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful. We are thankful for your power, for the life that you bring Thank you for Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. And today we want to say yes again to you. Yes to what you have for me in this season. Yes to what you have for me today. For how you want to mold and shape me to become more like Christ. I want to say yes. And Lord, we repent. Because we put other things on the list. We add things to you. And think that we're going to somehow attain heaven or salvation by all these things we could be doing. Thank you that that wasn't part of the plan. Thank you that you included us in your plan right from the beginning. So we reposition our hearts. We turn to you. We want you to be the only thing in our line of focus. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to sing a song and... um, If you want somebody to pray with you, maybe you came with something else entirely this morning and you just want somebody to pray with you after we're done singing, not yet, after we're done singing, we're happy to pray with you. And if you're not, if you don't need prayer this morning, have a great week, enjoy your summer. Thank you for being with us today.